Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming. So this is the Education Forum. My name's Gareth Sturdy, and uh, there's information on your seats about uh, what the Education Forum is all about. It's run by the Academy of Ideas, and we meet uh, probably twice a term um, uh, in this building, um, but uh, we discuss all sorts of um, educational matters. But this evening we're, we're being a little more uh, relaxed, a little, bit, a little more informal. Um, so, yes, you've got me, Gareth Sturdy, and Martin Robinson. So don't worry, Martin, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you what makes you suitable to be a Prime Minister. Um, however, Martin does have a somewhat more suitable CV than the current candidates for that job, I think. Um, about 20 years as a teacher, I believe, including senior leadership a QCA advisor, he's a blogger, uh, author, international speaker, consultant. How he finds time to be a somewhat permanent fixture on Twitter uh, is a bit of a mystery to me. Um, Martin gives the lie to the canard that those who can't do teach. The only thing that Martin doesn't really excel at is football. That's because he's a supporter of Spurs, but... um, We won't talk about that this evening. Um, Martin came to prominence with his first book, uh, Trivium 21C, in in 2013, which um, opened up classical thinking uh, to a whole new audience, um, breathed fresh life into that somewhat dusty and esoteric subject of the classical and medieval curriculum. Um, And he made it highly contemporary and very relevant to the changes taking place in education at that time that we're still sort of living through now. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I remember sitting with Martin in the, in the coffee bar at the basement of the Royal Society of Arts. Do you remember this? And uh, he first told me he was writing a new book about Athena. And I was recall thinking, why on earth is Martin writing a book about a 1980s station chain? Um, if you remember Athena, it used to sell posters and stuff. But in the time since then, I've managed to work out that he's not talking about the stationery shop. He's uh, talking about something else. And I've had a number of conversations with him as, as the book, Curriculum Athena versus the Machine, has taken shape. And I think it's a fascinating um, piece of work. I think it's, it's kind of like a Renaissance painting, really. You sort of, it's packed full of details and you... You kind of look at each little bit and it can take you off on a long, long train of thought. But the, the effect of the whole thing, I think, is greater than the, than the sum of its parts. So you've brought some copies along this evening to sell, I think. If anybody hasn't uh, yet uh, got the book, do buy a copy. He's selling them at the, the knockdown price of £10 this evening. So um, do pick one up. If you have already read it, then you'll know that it's uh, an ideal present for other people. Uh, buy your Christmas presents here everyone's going to get the same this year oh I've got curriculum um, yeah but it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a going to be a really interesting discussion this evening I think there's so much in the book so for the next few minutes um, I'm just going to ask Martin a, a few questions we'll have a little bit of a dialogue and then I'm going to um, just turn it over to yourselves and uh, you feel free to to um, ask whatever you want to about the book or um, about um, Martin's ideas. Um, If you're not familiar with the forum, what we tend to do is take uh, questions in batches so that um, 
Martin could respond to a, to a few um, at a time. Um, but as I say, we're going to have a nice kind of relaxed, informal uh, discussion this evening. Um, there is plenty of wine, so hopefully in a while. Do I have to be relaxed? Uh, if you want to be, yeah, it's, it's entirely up to you, Martin. Um, anyway, before we begin, can you just welcome Martin Robinson? So I've, I've got a list of about 15 questions here, Martin, whether we get to any of those or not. But obviously, the first one, who for you is Athena? What is the machine? Why did you need to write this book? Gosh, thank you. by the way, thank you for coming. It's very nice to see you all here. And uh, thank you for your lovely introduction as well, Gareth, which I certainly don't deserve, but uh, thank you. Um, let's look at Athena versus the machine. It's, it's, the, it's a confrontational diatribe, if you like. It's, uh, there's Athena who's there fighting and, and very aggressively fighting her corner, saying that the machine needs to be cleared out. And the machine, if you like, is the managerial approach, the instrumental approach, all the ways that I found as a teacher started to constrain me to such a point that I was no longer the effective teacher that I used to be. Um, Certainly for those of us in the arts, it became such a big thing. We had to just come up with data points every two weeks explaining where someone was in an art subject, which became a nonsense idea. But then it turned into green, red and amber as well on the spreadsheets and, and all that. And um, these became things that the children believed in. That was the other problem, that they actually believed that they were that number and that colour and um, also that target and all these other things that became the obsession. So what slowly took over teaching for me and for other people, if you, and I think you still notice this today with the questions that kids ask, what took over was no longer them addressing the subject, but how do I get this grade? How do I get this pass rate? And how do I make sure that I answer the questions right from day one? And it became more and more of an obsession. And I work with schools now, and they go, you go in there, and my daughter's at school now as well, of course, where she's been GCSE marked from year seven getting grades for that, you know, and, and the whole thing seems to be pushing over that the obsession is no longer what am I learning and the quality of it and the thinking behind it and the, the beauty, the wisdom of it and all those things. What it's become is what do I do to get that grade? And the whole school machinery is based around that for pretty much dubious reasons because I don't think it actually comes up with anything more than it says. So it, it satisfies itself, but I don't know whether it sort of turns into anything beyond that. So Athena is saying, forget all that. When you close the classroom door, yeah, that moment, you can do what you like, which teachers always have been able to do, of course. And at that point, the most important thing is what is the wise thing to do? So Athena there, as goddess of wisdom, if you like, gives you some sort of a pretend god that you can worship and say, well, we're going to worship wisdom in here, which is the thing itself, the subject itself, the things we want you to learn. That's um, the thing that first struck me when you um, bring Athena into the book. You, you talk about you were looking for a myth for teaching. Um, 
What exactly do you mean by a, a myth for teaching? How, how is a, a, t- a teacher to go into the classroom and think, I've got my myth now, off I go? What, what do you mean? Well, I used to work in a, in a Catholic school, so as, as a non-Catholic, it, it's, it's an interesting to have an ethos that, that has something beyond that of what we're doing here, so some sort of aim which is beyond the utilitarian, beyond some sort of uh, utopian. The first line of the school vision statement was we need to prepare children for death. Which was quite, which was quite good. So that—that's the sort of thing I mean. (laughs) Prepare, prepare them for something. Prepare them for something. Prepare us for something um, that is thought-provoking, that is thoughtful, that is about the subject that we're teaching, that is in the richness of the subject you're teaching, not in some sort of way of getting you a grade to go to this college or to go to this job or all those sorts of things. So it's just a way of shifting it. Someone talked about paradigm shift earlier. Shifting it from that over to there. Sort of saying, so here we are, we're back. Or we've gone forward to an idea that this subject is important. It has its own importance beyond it. Um, Again, as a drama teacher, you try at a, a parent's evening to justify why a kid should do drama as an option. Yeah? So they give you, oh, the uh, businesses say it's good for communication skills. Mm-hmm. So you're doing it for communication skills. But you're not doing it for any other purpose, you know. <laughs> well, there's got to be something more to a subject than it's good for communication skills. Oh, collaboration as well. Collaboration and communication. And, and that's such a dour-like reason for doing drama, which is sort of one of the oldest subjects taught in schools, back to the Greeks and before. You go um, into the structure of what you're learning, the ideas that you're learning, the plays you're looking at, the practitioners you're looking at, and it enriches your life. So the myths of your life, the things that give you structure to your life, ways of seeing, ways of constructing meaning, those are the important things. Not, oh, you might be good at communication if you do this subject. Or you can't do anything else, so you're doing drama, which is the other reason for doing it. I've heard a lot of, um, uh, well, I won't say a lot, but I mean, that where there has been um, criticism of, of, of the kind of things you're saying, um, it's, it's been among people who say, well, you know, that all sounds very nice and it's a bit romantic and uh, it's the vision thing. But, you know, my job is to give... Uh, kids from difficult backgrounds who don't get a lot of support at home academically, um, who probably don't even see themselves as in any sense academic. You know, my job is to give them the best chance in life. D- isn't it a bit dangerous to, to kind of uh, look for the blue sky, uh, grand vision, the myth of teaching, when you're actually trying to get them some good grades so they can go on to the next stage of education? Uh, well... I don't think the two are in conflict. I don't see that teaching someone things stops them getting good grades. It'd be interesting to see what uh, <laughs> what what uh, other people think about that because I think we're at a point. Well, you no, know, the, the, the opposite thing is right. You're doing six pointer, nine pointer essays. You know, how do you answer this from day one? This is PEE. You know, point evidence, explain this. We're going to do all these things right from day one. And you're not structuring the idea of what an essay is. You're not structuring an idea of how to engage with a text or two texts or how to think, is that beautiful? What's the quality behind that? What's the thinking behind that? Um, You're straight away 
into answering the, the, the exam question. I mean, I use this example of a school I went to, the Frankenstein curriculum. And in year 12 and 13, they taught Frankenstein. That was their text for English. And in GCSE, they said, well, we teach Frankenstein as well. So they do Frankenstein at GCSE, and they do it at A-level. And then, you, you never guess what, in our two-year key stage three, we do Frankenstein as well. So there you go. If you do English at that school, you do Frankenstein all the way through. Yeah, so that's the Frankenstein curriculum. You keep bringing it back from the dead. That's yes, exactly. You know, creating a but the trouble is, in that school, and this is to answer your question and uh, to agree with the problem here, is that that English department got the best grades in the school. So, you know, there they are doing something which is limiting an education, but getting the highest grades. Now, the work I did there is to say, well, look, we can, where can we put this so we get somewhere the same thing? So we started talking about Romanticism, the Enlightenment, the Gothic, and putting it into sort of that, so we, we go from that side inwards to it. Um, the novel, what's a novel? They never taught what a novel was. And my daughter's been at school, she's now in year nine. I asked her three weeks ago, what's a novel? She has no idea. So no one's taught her the breadth <laughs> The things that these sit into. What is a novel? Has she has she ever read a novel? You know, she she's read she's copious amounts of novels. Yep. She was doing, she was off she was really ill this year. And she was off for six weeks. Uh, went along and um, the science teacher knew what she'd missed. The maths teacher knew what she'd missed. The English teacher said she missed noughts and crosses. Yeah, the book, yep. novel. So it, she, if she can read that, I said, Well she did read it, she's read it. But what has she missed? That's it. So six weeks of school, she read Noughts and Crosses. That's all she needs to do. Nothing about the novel itself or what mm. it was turned into, you know, what, what are these themes coming out here? It wasn't it? Why are we doing Noughts and Crosses then as well? You know, where does it fit into an overall thing? Well, it's just whatever the teacher wanted. Okay, to do. So, so before I um, go out to the audience, I mean... Uh, I think many teachers would probably agree that they'd love to teach in in that kind of climate. But the reality of the situation that a lot of people, actually every teacher I think I can think of is in, is that there's not enough time. You know, there's, and and particularly with the change in the exam criteria, the amount of knowledge now has increased. And so people seem to spend a lot of time just trying to transmit fact. and then to kind of ex- expand and, and, and look at the wider picture means that people can write answers in exams that examiners, because they're so programmatic, don't realise is the right answer, but it's just not in the words that they're expecting. So, uh, <laughs> as I say, just before we go out, how, how do you... I, I know that you're, you're not a, a, a sort of dreamer about this, you're very practically focused, but how do you deal with that problem of... There's no time to do this anyway, and even if you do, you run the risk of the examiner not understanding what the pupil is saying. Yeah, again, you've got to, you have to teach people how to answer exam questions. You have to. I'm not saying you shouldn't. The trouble is, if you do it for years upon years upon years, they don't actually know how to answer exam questions. They know how to answer specifically the questions they've been given. They haven't got the breadth in order to think about what's going on with this particular question. Unless they've happened to answer it, luckily. 
<laughs> before yeah. it's come up in certain ways. So you need the breadth of knowledge in order and, and to think about how answers are structured. In, in, in time, with going to the, the trivium idea of learning about rhetoric, you learn how to write, you learn how to think, you learn how to look and read and understand things, and then of course you can like enrich the source, if you like, to answer exam questions. But you don't do that from day one, so that's all they know. So the so where where do we end up? We end up with people answering questions because it's within their range, not at the end of it, hoping desperately that the right questions come up. But um, that's that's always been somewhere along the line. You know, you've always had the, the problem with that. The, the the when I was at school, the teachers had no idea about the exams. That was the other thing. They had no idea how they were marks. They had no idea about anything. When I started teaching, it was just you, all you had was the question paper from the past papers, and you would hope you were marking similar sort of things. Then it slowly started to increase what came up in terms of how we mark these things, and then it took over that you now go for exam criteria all the way through. How do you get that number there and, and, and all that? So that, that took over. I don't think um, we can teach with the exam criteria in mind from day one. Then. You, you, Did I ask you a question? Yeah, I think, well, I'll leave it up to other people because right. they can come back to you. But, I thought there but was just, two questions. Just, that was one of the questions. Just, just on that, you talked about your own time at school. Uh, you, you went to the same school as Theresa May, I, yes, I, I believe. Yes, I went to a girls' grammar school. She, <laughs> she became Prime Minister, Martin. You ended up working on a market stall. So yes. just briefly tell us... What, what that was all about. What was your She, she went about? to a girls' grammar school and um, in in rural Oxfordshire. Um, and there's there's a there's a lovely book about it. I wish you I, I can't remember the name, something or something. But um, they talk about the this part of rural Oxfordshire and the uh, eleven plus there and how they had to drop the uh, pass grades because the local peasantry was so stupid that there wasn't enough people going into the grammar school. So um, she got in. Anyway, she was the vicar's daughter, and there, there she is. Um, but um, and she ended up at Oxford doing geography. Mm. Yeah. Then it became a comp, a comprehensive school. And they put together the boys into this school, from, mainly from Shotover School, which was the um, secondary modern, and some from Lord William's School in Tame, which was the grammar school somewhere in there. And they pulled it together. And they left the girls' grammar school people in charge. And so we had Mrs. Brain and Mrs. Mills and Mr. Baldwin, who were in charge of the school. And because they'd never seen boys before, not in, not in this sort of boys, they, the whole thing collapsed. And by the time I was there, um, which was a few years after she'd gone, um, it was utter chaos. Utter chaos. And so, I, mean, I mean riots... Uh, the, the head of remedial, as it, that's it, head of remedial studies. Her car was turned over in the car park. We had motorbikes in the corridors. And I, I, I just want to check. This coincides with you going to the school. Like, this coincides. Yeah, okay, with you going fine. To the school. So, um, so my edu- my education. And this is the thing. I mean, I left school at sixteen with hardly any qualifications at all. Ended up working in a market stall, and um, thinking in in Oxford looking at the other side of education, which was obviously a completely different experience to it that we were locked out from. So, so my education is not like this at all. My education is non-existent, really. I'm, I'm very bitter and twisted about it. 
I know you're very bitter and twisted. <laughs> It's because you support Spurs, that's the second one. Uh, there'll be another one at some point. Um, okay, so who among us has had the opportunity to read A Thing of Business Machine yet? I'm just gauging whether people are familiar with this book or not. Okay, so. And how many might be up to the bike? <laughs> well, perhaps we don't want to ask that yet. Um, okay, well, has anybody, anybody got anything that they want to, to uh, ask Martin at this point? Nathan, please, um, please tell us your name. Uh, sorry, just introduce yourself yeah, very briefly. I'm Nathan. I'm a teacher in my second year in the Teach First program. Um, hello, Nathan. Hello. <laughs> what I wanted to ask about was, and you probably find this very boring because it touches on the whole problem trancing. Probably that nobody wants to go there. Yeah, let's go. But do you see this? Um, this kind of very narrow, um, like you said, instrumental approach focused on essentially training children like the uh, whatever animals you train to, to pass GCSEs as a result of the fact that the prog stuff has buggered up the primary school so badly that when the kids come in, they don't really have uh, the base, the base of knowledge which they would need to build your broad uh, knowledge about romanticism, enlightenment, whatever else on top. They don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the, the base knowledge, and they don't have the writing skills. And so you're left with these kind of, you know, um, kids who, who can't really do anything. And, and I see this um, this approach that you're talking about, which I hate as much as you, as a kind of um, response to this. I wonder what you thought about it. I'm just going to say, I've got a vague idea, I know which side of the debate you're coming from. Well, I'm all for what um, Martin's talking about, but I think that a precondition of that is some serious, bloody rigorous um, stuff going on in the primary, so they come in able to read and write, they write in the proper tense, they can use full stops, they they know what a, a, a willow tree is. You know, so, primary school, primary and secondary. Secondary, sorry. Yeah, I have, I have taught in primary, but in a very old school. Every school is old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So <laughs> before before you answer that, Martin, just want to see if there's any, any anybody else. So we'll, we'll take a few questions, and then we, we might get a little bit oh, of a sort of flag. Uh, at the back there. Uh, I'm Gregor. I uh, am an art teacher. Teaching is a kind of third career for me, so I've been doing it for about. <laughs> Five years now, and I still feel very new to it. Um, the question that I want to that, that I want to get to is around accountability of teachers, um, and as well. And um, uh, let's see. I've in in the, the relatively short time that I've been teaching, what feels like a short time, teachers seem to be either the most amazing people I've ever encountered, or just these bizarre. Why are you even here? Um, <laughs> uh, there, there seems to be a real kind of like very, it's not a bell curve, um, and in my, in my limited experience. I want to tell you an anecdote. So uh, last week, I, so it, as an art teacher, I um, uh, tell my A-level and GCSE students about exhibitions that they should go see. Um, there's one at the British Museum that just opened about Troy. So I'm having a conversation um, with a history teacher, asking him if he's interested in the classics at all, and he explains, no, it's modern history for him. Um, but an, another teacher walks past and hears me, hears us talking about the British Museum, 
and she says, British Museum, worst museum ever, so boring. And I'm like, <laughs> I just say, wow. Yeah. Uh, and she says, yeah, you know the problem with the British Museum is there's nothing British in it. Anyway, my point is this. <laughs> I, 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 does she get good results with her kids because she teaches the test? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, how do we, if, if, how do we, uh, how do we distinguish between good and bad teachers if we're not measuring things like grades? Is there a qualitative kind of measure? Is there a more, what kind of approach would you think about? Okay, I'm just gonna maybe take one or, one or two more. God, hope this you know, can, <coughs> yes, I am. Right. I, I sort of was thinking the very same thing about accountability when I was listening to Martin. I think the move to accountability was one of the most disastrous things I've ever had. And I can explain partly, I think, why. So I remember my time when the National College of School Leadership was set up. And if you looked on the National College of School Leadership around that time, a few years afterwards, I remember doing this for a job. The most read resource by uh, aspiring head teachers, so it was you know, hundreds of people reading this resource. If you read the first paragraph, it was cut and pasted from the Harvard Business Review, and they hadn't even taken the word profit out of it. <laughs> and that, that was what they did, the naivety of what they did. And all I'd say beyond that is, I honestly don't know, I'd love to do some accountability about the schools, I really would, but, but I don't know how you do it. You know, I've, I've worked in business and schools, and, I, and when I moved from schools to business, I loved the accountability of business. Someone sits down with you, and some of you people in the room will know this, and they say, this is your job, and you go, fantastic, and you just do your job, it's lovely, and they give you more money if you do it well. You know, but it's nothing like that in schools, and I don't know how you do it in schools. I don't. Okay. Um, let's, let's go with those for now, because they're quite, they were quite long, long questions. So we, we had... Uh, the, the, the primary school kids don't know enough, so it's difficult to do anything else than a sort of programmatic thing. We've got um, accountability and how do you tell the good and bad teachers apart? Is there, a, is there a qualitative or quantitative way of doing that? And then uh, is it the business ethos that's yeah. to blame or would that put it right? So there you go. Three, um, start, I was working with uh, infant schools and primary schools. Um, no, infant schools and junior schools. Um, two days ago and they are moving from a model of very much inquiry based learning and the infant school has been the one who's been holding out for the longest if you like and I was sent in there particularly by the junior schools who were very interested in this same thing, you know they're coming out from there not being able to do anything or know anything and we talked about art and that was the way in and what do they do with art? Well, at the moment, it's just creative. So they just create stuff with art, which, which is lovely, isn't it? You know, they, things that end up on fridges, you know, around the uh, neighbourhood. And by the end of it, they start to think, well, actually, what are we passing on with art? We, we need to focus on the things. Perhaps we need to teach art rather than have it as part of topic. So we actually start to teach them to draw. And this was a new thing, actual thinking about drawing and how to draw and what to draw and how, how to, to make that work in order to pass it on to the school above, pass it on if you like, which is where we get to accountability, of course, because by the time you get to GCSE, there's a lot of work already been done that you can't account for, you know, the, the year one teacher. <laughs> 
It's got no accountability structure around them in terms of grades. Um, it's, it's all done on other things. But if you start thinking of curriculum, I t- talk about this as a joined-up curriculum. If you think of curriculum as a narrative, as a story, and every teacher is teaching a chapter, they know what's the chapters to follow and the chapters before, and they pass that through, pass the child through the story, um, this starts to make absolute structure of the subject the, the thing that, that makes importance. So the idea is that the structure of the whole thing is around the subjects, around the curriculum, and the curriculum gives you that. So you can do this with schools that have some sort of joined upness as well. So maths, for instance, that that these junior schools then go into this secondary school and and they have some sort of um, way of making sure that they are communicating well between the different buildings, if you like. It's more difficult when you're in a secondary school and you've got five or six feeder primaries, some of which are doing that, some of which are doing that, etc., etc. So I think there is a need for curriculum to be joined up in such a way that ensures that doesn't happen. But it is important. If curriculum isn't joined up, then you have no continuity, you have no thing. I mean, I, I, my schooling was never thought about in that way. I, was, I had ne- never had experience of a joined up curriculum in any way, in any sense. Some subjects are more easy to see like that, perhaps maths, perhaps science, they work in a more structured way like that. You pretty much have an idea of the sorts of things you might be doing, um, but if it's English, you could be reading lots of different things, you know, in different ways. So it's, it's, it's certainly a problem. But I think the conversation has to be had. And Athena, if you like, gives you a, a direction, a, a way of saying, well, we need this conversation about what we're passing on, how we're making sure these things move through. Um, is, is that the sign, to go, to go to the question about good and bad teachers, is that the sign of a good teacher, that they have that idea of the, the narrative of their subject? Is I think, that... Well, I also think there's too much of a focus on the teacher, the teacher, the lesson, the lesson plan, the, the, um, the walk-in, <laughs> are they any good, you know, and all that, whereas for me it's more collaborative, it's more um, about departments. How good is the department? How good is the subject? How, how well is that structured? Is it, is it creating good art? <laughs> you know, which are qualitative, which are subjective um, ways of looking at these things? And you, you go through it through conversational ideas about, you know, well, is it working well, etc., etc., rather than what are the grades at the end of it, the hard grades at the end of it, because that doesn't necessarily tell you everything you need to know. Is that what is going wrong there in that situation with Gregor's colleague who doesn't really seem to get the point of the British Museum. I mean, is there a... Should he be having a conversation at, at that moment? And how well, is that Well, it's the wrong time to have the conversation in front of the kids. <laughs> no, <Dave. laughs> That's exactly what the British Museum's about. But, but, but it's part of, yeah, why do we go here? Why do we do these trips now? Why do we do these things? And some sort of sense that everyone in the department or in, in the in the school has a shared purpose and understands why these things are done, what the thinking is behind them, and that's proper collaboration. Now, that takes time to talk and takes, um, perhaps, we need to ensure teachers have more time to talk. So rather than, I was going to say, 30 in a class, you know, perhaps you need 36 in a class. Can I say that? You know, not today, they've also announced you. But, you know, perhaps you need bigger class sizes and, and um, more time to talk collaboratively and make things happen in that way. Or more investment in 
teaching staff rather than teaching assistants. I don't know. You know, but, but there are other things going on there which, you, which you could talk about. Do you, do you think that the management is top-heavy going to Joe's And, and the other thing is, <laughs> and this is, this is a feature in the book, speaking of someone who, who, who um, went up the slippery... Slip, going up the slippery slope, that's it. It always has a sort of downward potential. <laughs> going up the slippery ladder, slope, whatever. Um, losing my metaphors. But as soon as you get to a position of responsibility, you then have to justify your position of responsibility by bringing in an initiative. So you've got to show, here's an initiative. How do you measure your initiative? Well, I, <laughs> this is how I measure it. So, you know, every sort of person who ended up as a TLR point one, two, three comes in and then they're doing this and they're doing things themselves and showing because they've got to do it on performance management because they've got to prove. They've got to three things they've got to do every year. You know, it's not just notice boards. You can't just do notice boards every year. So, you know, you've got to show some sort of leadership management potential. So I'm going to take this team and get them to do this and everything sort of drives from above downwards. But there's so many people. The only way to get promoted was to become in charge of more and more people doing less and less useful things. So you'd be in touch, uh, in charge of growth mindset or you'd be in charge of um, mindfulness or whatever. You know, so you so you come in and say, and I'm making sure these things are happening, and I'm and I'm doing these surveys to make sure they're they're done well, and I'm going around making sure staff are doing these things, and it becomes there's so many chiefs of little chiefs, you know, and, and half of them are in charge of each other as well. That's the other thing. So they've got this sort of bitter sort of war going on between them. If you don't do mine, I'm not doing yours, and <laughs> the whole thing collapses around itself. If, you, if you've read the book, you, you will know that um, early on uh, you talk about going to a modern school and how it feels more like a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, an, an outpost of, a, of a, a sort of regional, you know, factory or something, you know. Yeah. And, um, Office. Yeah. But I, um, I'm wondering if you think that the character of school leaders has are they more like Harvard Business School types across the board now and if so is that the big problem with the machine well the, the, the thing was and this is absolutely right to pick up on which is you were bo- the, the book of school management you were bought was the Stephen Covey book Seven Habits of uh, Great Leaders or whatever it's called Highly Effective yeah. People yeah, right? yeah. so, so this, this becomes um, management speak is all business speak and it's all been, and this was the Blairite thing, which education, education, business as well, business, 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 really, which is bringing in business ways of working into the uh, education sector, which involves measurement, which involves measuring stuff and, and improving, you know, and improving it in certain ways. Now, I used to do sales. I used to sell double glazing from door to door, and used to get um, salesperson of the month and things like that, you know, for the amount you'd sell. And it, you could just do it. There's the figures that shows you did better than anyone else because you got. Now the thing is to to compare um, how an art teacher is teaching compared to how a maths teacher is teaching, and to say which one's doing better than which one, or which department's doing the better than which one, is is impossible. And yet, at the end, even when the GCSE grades came out, the art teacher hasn't done so well as perhaps the maths department hasn't done so well as the modern foreign languages always get caught up in this as well. As though an A is equal to an A there, an A there, or a 9 is equal to a 9 is equal to a 9. Now, no one has any idea whether those things are actually equal, because they're totally different subjects, totally different disciplines. Where I'm saying double glazing, 
that's a different thing. You can say, well, that's all double glazing. But it's, it's, that. it's, it's totally impossible to have the same thing going on. So business doesn't work in an academic environment. Great. Uh, more questions. Who would like to ask something? So we've got one over here. Yep. Um, I, I, I put my hand up very soon. I'm only about halfway through. But um, early on in the book, you talk about the notion of uh, the idea that the content of education should be set by connoisseurs and, I think that's the language used, connoisseurs and curators, I think so it was, and not handing it over to uh, populists in the market. Just one, but I just, I just wanted to clarify who the connoisseurs and curators are. Like, I like to think that I have some degree of expertise relative to those I teach, and relative to some of my colleagues, you know, otherwise you get the history teacher teach my science lessons. So I'm Connor, I'm a science teacher. So I like to think I have some degree of relative expertise, but who else are the curators and, and connoisseurs of, of a given subject or whatever is? Uh, and a second question is just, how does that relate outside of education? So if we're not abandoning the content of education to populists in the market, thinking in, in your phrasing, does that apply to politics, does that apply to healthcare, and so on? Wow, wow. And we've, <laughs> and we've got them already. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, very much. Um, Harley had a question at the back of it. Uh, yeah, Harley, uh, Roger Education Publishing, uh, just finished the book, fantastic, I want you to go out and read it. Um, a couple of things that stuck in my mind. One is that you, you know, you, the whole thing, Athena, schools making wisdom their purpose. But you also said at one point to talk about wisdom could take a lifetime. Um, so doesn't that suggest it's a bit bigger than schools? And that to, yes. to, to society have to make wisdom its purpose for that to work. Um, and then second thing, um, I don't know how many people in here are familiar with this, there's been a lot of talk about what cognitive science can tell you about learning the last few years, there's a lot of talk about short-term memory, long-term memory, and people have started talking about how the way, you know, how do you tell if someone's learned something? Well, they say there's been a change in long-term memory. It's gone in there, it's stuck in there. And one of the bits I like most of the book is we have a real go at that, but I can't now explain to people what that's what it was. Probably a good thing. Luckily, we've got the author right here. For the audience, Before we do that, before we do that, I'm going to see if there's any any more. Kevin, were you waving yes, at me? Uh, yes, Martin, two things. The first one was when you started off your conversation about people justifying perhaps the arts through um, the fact that it helps you with communication skills or whatever. I was teaching a lesson history that were your nines and uh, they do be presentations on whatever they want. This girl says she's a brilliant, brilliant human being and she loves her art and drama. And um, so she gave a little presentation on the importance of the arts. And she was trying to argue against the sausage machine of exam factories. But what was really interesting was that she argued for the arts on the basis that it helps you uh, in interviews, with your interview skills for jobs. And um, it was really fascinating because she's so bright, but she's never picked up the language or the narrative or the ability to be able to argue for the arts for its own sake. And she is like a shining light of year nine. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting that even her had to fall back on the instrumentalist point. Can I ask you another question, which for me is very, very, very profound, genuinely, but it might not be for the audience, but for me it's very profound, and it links, and I hope I'm not going to embarrass you, to some of the reviews of your book, because you get excoriated, you get absolutely screwed and attacked in a lot of the book reviews, and 
the, the question I really want to ask is, you know, this is a very, very serious question. It's to do with the fact that I completely agree with you. There's something fundamentally and profoundly wrong with education. And I, I buy into the idea that education is about an exploration of the human condition and autonomy mandate. And it's about the inculcation of intellectual curiosity and hopefully to pass on wisdom. So it's an intergenerational conversation. So my question is this. I agree with that. Are we in a culture war, a profound battle, and we have to call it for what it is? Or do you think that, that we can square the circle? Because on the other side of the fence, what you have here in my school right now, but I think across the board, is the argument that schools are, Garth asked this earlier, schools are for social mobility. And we, you know, forget about the blue skies thinking, we will lose kids to this moral responsibility, get them the best grades because they're from poor housing states and they have to get the best jobs. On the other hand, you have a section of teachers now who, for want of a better word, are left-leaning and they think it's for social justice. So you can have the social mobility, social justice. But again, Garth asked the question, you touched on it, you have the accountability agenda. So if you're a teacher like yourself or like me, you're seen as a has-been or yesterday's person because you can't play the game for the data, the inputs, the outputs. And it's young, the young teachers come into education from Teach First and everywhere else. They're very bright and interesting young people, but there's a certain mentality which is that they play the game, they operate the system, they're the can-do people. And, and finally, there's an element of also in schools, the social engineering agenda, if you want to call it that. And my, my question is this, and I desperately don't want to be reductionist. Do we need to engage in a genuine, absolute, all-out battle here and call a spade a spade? Or is there a way of trying to improve the situation without being crude and basically drawing daggers? I myself am frustrated and I, I struggle to see a way around that. Every so often I speak to young teachers in my school, you know, one or two here, right now, and I can get across an element of idealism to them and I can carry them so far. But another thing about the reviews of your book, if you don't mind me saying, is that sometimes you, you were caricatured as I am and the education forum as yesterday's people, and that we're a little like a remnant of people who are still going on, but we haven't got with the real world. So I hope that doesn't sound too highfalutin. <laughs> I called the arms, but really in terms of your book and everything you've written, even Tribune before, which people in the education forum genuinely would find inspiring. What's our next step here? Do we need to call it for what it is, and it means that there'll be blood on the floor, or is there a more subtle way of trying to fight for, for the vision of education that some of us believe in? That's a dangerous one to answer. That, so, well, I was just, just going to say, so all of all of our questions there just managed to come up with two questions each, apart from Kevin, who did about five. There. Let me just <laughs> let me just sort of draw those together. So, Colin was talking about uh, who are the, the connoisseurs and, and curators, and and I, I guess there's a wider thing there going back to what Kevin's just said. Connoisseurs and curators of what? Are we not talking about of culture? So, is that you know, are teachers themselves not? fulfilling a really important cultural role there that might perhaps be in danger. That's something to do with, I think, what you mean by wisdom. Um, and then what, what's wisdom got to do with the cognitive science? Is that 
is that the machine? Um, uh, Kevin was referring to, to, the, to the arts as being um, uh, instrumentalised for sort of interview skills and, and, and things, but then brought up the idea of social mobility. And I know in the book you talk about something called cultural mobility. So there's cultural literacy is very important for Ofsted at the moment. Social mobility, as Kevin's just talked about, you seem to sort of weld the two together, possibly. And, and you know, are we people that get this? Are we just a bunch of has beens, yeah. old white men? Yeah. <laughs> right. Where do we start? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so the first one again. So the first one is the well. You don't have to take them in order. You don't have to answer all well, of let's them. Go, let's go with the, let's go with the, the um, cognitive science one to start with. Then. Um, learning is a change in long-term memory. I think Dan Willingham actually talked about this and pointed out that Alzheimer's is a change in long-term memory. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're learning something, this, this thing, you know. Um, but it's, it's something that Offset picked up on and, and used within their descriptions of what they think learning is. So it, it's important to address it. Um, I, I wouldn't argue against cognitive science. I'm not arguing against any sort of scientific approach or anything, what I would argue against is then it becomes reductive and the whole thing becomes that and you forget all the other things. So if I say, what is your working memory? How are you aware of it? How, I mean, where is it? Do you know where it is? Is it working? It's working now, but in what way? I mean, what, what would you give it another word to? Is it, is it consciousness? Is it yourself? Is it your thinking? Is it your attention? Is it something you're attending to? Because the, the way that we're looking at it is it goes into your working memory. But there's something else which is going on, which is now happening, and you're looking at me. And you've got a thought going in the other direction, and then you're sort of doing all these things in your head, thinking he's talking crap, he's talking this, he's saying, oh, I agree with that, or all these other things going on. So for you, it's not working memory. Working memory is a model, isn't it? It's a way of trying to understand something. But your human way of understanding it is this is me. This is my consciousness we're talking about here. And then you draw on long-term memory. This is me. This is what I, you know. Um, being close to someone who had dementia, memory is to see it go slowly over time is quite a frightening thing and see someone disintegrate in front of you. So for me, it's not working memory, long-term memory, it's a human being. And at some level, and this is where the arts come in, we address people in these ways. They're not sort of mechanical things, they are who you are. And so I talk about bringing the human back in, if you like, and saying, yes, these are useful things to think about, but if we reduce ourselves to working memory, long-term memory, and the whole thing is about that then it's mechanised again, and we've taken the human being out of the picture. And again, this is where quality comes in, the qualitative stuff of what you're saying. So the connoisseur brings in, if I'm showing you a book or something, trying to get it into your head, you've still got this coming through and saying, I don't agree with that, or I don't like that, or this doesn't fit in with what you could say is my schema, or this doesn't fit in with the way I view the world. So we have the connoisseur saying to someone who's cynical about it, here's some Mozart, it's important for you to like it. Um, it's cultural literacy, or all those sorts of things. I don't like Mozart, it's shit. I like Stormzy, and there's Stormzy and Mozart thing comes in. So 
what do we do with that? We say, well, you still need it in your working memories, your long-term memory, you're going to keep going that. No, we have to have a discussion about taste, about um, why something might be good that's alien to you. We have to talk to you as a human being, not just as this is working memory, long-term memory, and all those other things. So it's not a reductive thing. And of course teachers do that. Of course teachers do that. But if it just becomes... There was something on Twitter the other day about... In our school, it said we've been asked, we've got to do a quiz every lesson for 10 minutes, and then after that, we've got to do some direct instruction, then after that, we've got to do some, I think it was, uh, I see I've lost, lost it, actually, I was going to say, but it, there was very, it was, there was a five-part lesson, and the learning walks were going round to make sure that they were doing it on this way. It's all rose and shine based, or all this. So, so that's it. That's what we do. That's the way we do it. Every subject, no matter what, has to be taught in that way. And so that's the mechanical taking it to the extreme. To me, no, it's a human thing talking about what I think is good. And the connoisseurs are the teachers. They, they sit there and they say, this is what we should teach, and this is why we should teach it, and this is why we should teach it in that order. And this is why we should put that next to that and compare and contrast and, and weigh them up and, and put those things together in that way. But, but isn't, isn't Kevin right? That's a war. That's a, you can't have that conversation in many schools without either bombs going off or, or finding yourself in trouble. Is that not the case? Well, it's, it's odd because I've worked and working with and, do, and doing something soon with, with Ofsted, Teach First and, and various other people and, and schools. And the Marmite notions of it in some points do come across, but, but in, in many, it seems to be... okay. I mean, if you look at what Ofsted are trying to do now, it is to look at the qualitative side of what curriculum might be. The trouble is, if they've still got the accountability stick, so everyone's sort of looking at that and saying, right, we have to bring in... Um, <laughs> Cultural capital. You know, we've got to teach them cultural capital now. And what's your cultural capital? So it's being done in that way rather than, well, what's good? Why do we think this is good? Why do we think this works? That, fra- that framework, the new framework for Austin, has been around, you know, about four months now, if that. And already we're seeing loads of schools, uh, exactly in the way I think Kevin has described, okay, okay, right, forget everything else. Right, we need a curriculum intent statement. What's that? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. go and write in the curriculum. So my argument's always been that unless people kind of read a book like yours and then take it as a unity they're all, the machine is so powerful these days yeah. it's always going to win and, and consultants it? like me will be out there saying how do you write a, an intent yeah. statement so you have to write an intent statement like this, this is how you write it and there, there's courses you can go on for a weekend you know, a two day course on writing an intent statement so that, that becomes something very difficult to do. So whatever. the cover of the book is quite violent, so how does one fight? Yeah, it's based, based on um, Transformers from the 1980s, Marvel. What if, you're, what if you're too old and, <coughs> and clapped out to transform yourself? You only know one way to teach, <laughs> which is to be a connoisseur. How do you fight the machine? Well, I think books are important, and having the conversations are important. I don't think... I don't think it's just clapped out old teachers that have this sort of thing going on as well. I think a lot of teachers do. And I, th- I think the way the conversations are going towards curriculum, as soon as you start saying what should be in the curriculum, that's where the conversations can be had because these are all little 
moments in a, in a day, if you like. So what should we teach? Well, it could be what's in the stock cupboard, what's on, you know, things like that. But also around that, having those conversations become very important, which is why I think it's the curriculum is, is the way through it, is by bringing teachers together to stop talking about data, start talking about curriculum more, saying we need to design a great curriculum because you can even say because Ofsted if you want to, is a little way of leverage if you like, but it's to have the conversations, what do we teach, when do we teach it, why do we teach it there, and why do we teach it overall, you know, what, what's, the, what, what's the point of what we're doing here, and all those things become very important. When Kevin was talking just now, I noticed quite a few people in the, uh, among you nodding uh, when he was talking ab- about, um, you know, you feel sort of marginalised in, so- in some way or another. People were nodding. I'd really like to hear from some of those people if they felt like uh, speaking up. What was it about what Kevin was saying that was resonating and where do you think that's connecting with, with what Martin's saying? Is anyone feeling brave? Don't feel put on the spot. You don't have to say anything, but I'm just wondering if anybody did want to uh, contribute. I think that the, the, the new breed of leaders um, who are taught to a business model they, they don't know what they don't know. So, you know, you're not old and flat down to talk. You, you have spent more time on the planet and you've had opportunities to learn more and become wiser. That's why you know what you know. And if they were sensible enough to open their minds a bit, they would learn a lot. I mean, I'm in the same position as you. Uh, you know, uh, the things that I say to our leadership team are, um, yes... And they also don't know what excellent looks like. Those of us who've been around for a long time have worked with people who've been genuinely awesome at what they do. And many, many people these days do not know what that looks like. That's a really fundamental point, because the, the UK education system is a wash with people at the top who have never seen a school yeah. in their life. They've only ever been through poor or mediocre. Now, you're not going to get to better if that's, that's your yeah. and, and, you know, uh, I talk to people about sort of the structure that I'm working in at the moment, and I'll say, you know, having experienced what it's like to work with genuinely talented leaders, um, and they just say, well, isn't everybody like that? Isn't everybody average? It's like, no, bloody well not. Um, and we actually need to do something about that because, you know, we're accepting yeah. something that is just not, it's not okay. Okay, so just before you come in, I know you, sir, were, were, were going to say something no, about I mean, that. I, so I please. was just going to make the note that actually people who are selecting entry to the management team are the management team. Yeah. So that creates yeah. a paradigm. And the job descriptions yeah. are not fixed. So, I mean, I, I think from that, yeah, we need grizzled RSNs. But I think you know one of the things I see in Martin's introduction of the theme of its allusions to classicism and philosophy is that we can actually we need boots on the ground, but we need to claim the air force. So there's a bit of a, an idiocracy going on, Martin. How again? How, do, how does one sort of penetrate into that? How do you get into the machine and muck about with it? Partly, is, that is not having so many chiefs as well, because I think there, it, it is. 
over-managerized, some just managerialized, some schools have too much management going on. So I think that, due to cuts or whatever, <laughs> there is a certain reason to not have so many people in charge of people. So having much flatter management structures, um, people working in departments, etc. you know, rather than you're, you're in charge of key stage three, you're in charge of key stage four, do the curriculum for it, that actually work together and create the curriculum and review it ad infinitum. You know, it keeps, we keep this as a, as a, a process that we keep going through. So our discussions are about curriculum, that's part of the managerial model. So it's flatter management, all those things. And I think that's a, a, it's a better form of management. It's a better form of management and it keeps teachers interested in their teaching because they're not trying to do other things. They are actually talking about the subject they're teaching and they're, they're creating those things together. Which comes back, which I didn't answer about wisdom. The idea about wisdom is not that you arrive at it, but you keep pursuing it. It's a pursuit, because none of us ever get there. <laughs> but if you, if you have that, it's a direction. You're saying, go towards wisdom rather than, you will get there. This is it. Some, some people might. So that flies in the face of assessment, doesn't it? Well, you don't have tick wise. I mean, wisdom, if you go into the um, Oxford English Dictionary, it describes it as three, three um, things, one of which is knowledge experience and judgment so those three things come together and experience doesn't finish until you're finished really <laughs> you know so it, and, and a very important part of it you know is is the older years you know but um yeah so uh, it's not going to do you any favors i think with the Negative reviewers out there. Are you saying you? negative? Can I just say there's one really negative? <laughs> well, review. actually, this is this is true. I've, I've seen a couple that were that were um, and one one okayish, one okayish, yep. one and the, and the rest have been superb. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, 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 I'm like to, I'd like Kevin. to point that out. <laughs> uh, I, I I wrote some very positive blurbs for the book, so that's all I can say. No, but I was going to say you haven't you haven't done much for um, those that claim you're sort of a dusty old conservative. I think you've just justified cuts in education on the basis it will flat and out management. But uh, anyway, I'm going to... So, uh, not justified it. I'm just saying that, that might be a way... Of... I'm being a bit frivolous, yeah, okay. I'm afraid. Um, we've got a question here. Before I take that question, I just want to, uh, again, put, put out that point. If you think there is a culture war going on in education, yeah, I think this is a really important point, and I'd like to get into that. Particularly if you think, no, there isn't a culture war. Uh, I don't understand, you know, what this other way this old guard might be going on about. I'm a new teacher or I'm a, you know, I've just come into the profession. What are you on about? You know, do speak up. Don't feel that this is a, uh, there's a necessarily a consensus here. Um, what was your question, sir? Um, and, and who are you? And are, are you a teacher? Or? I'm not a teacher. Uh -huh. So um, I do some speaking. I'm in, how can I say, digital technology and all that sort of stuff. But, um, Question related to that is yeah. very different sort of angle, I guess. What, what's your opinion on technology in education? Because, you know, to some degree, someone's laughing already, um, <laughs> you know, it can do teachers a great favour, you know, remote learning and all the rest of it, and greater access to knowledge, Google, and all, all that sort of stuff. At the same time, it can severely undermine, you know, teachers' authority when they are welcoming technology, virtual teaching assistants, and God knows what, to kind of replace their 
their need to face up to kids, I guess. So, you know, in some ways it's kind of doing them a favour, in other ways it's opening the door to more managerialism and lack of authority and the rest of it. Like, what's your view? I think, I think it's done that, the latter thing. It's, it's, it's become a stick to beat teachers with, almost, at points. Um, but it could, it could be an excellent thing. But it's, it's being done in a way that it's serving the needs of the technology companies. Oh, we've got this. Should we um, sell that to schools? You know, we, we could do this, this could do that. And things like Google, what, what they seem to have done, Wikipedia in particular as well, have, have um, turned essay writing into quite an easy art. You know, you just go there, cut and paste. Bang, there's your essay. Give it out to people. Or, or you can find things out... Plagiarism is, is rife, you know. Um, the thing I talk about in the book is something Anthony Selden talked about, in, in, I think in 10 years, that teachers will be replaced by robots. And um, what uh, the human staff at a school will be there to keep order. But the, the, the robots will take over and do the teaching and they'll be far better at it, is, is what he said. And, and my reaction to that is no because teaching is a human relationship like parenting like like other things it's it's actually about the human in the world in the culture understanding the culture humanly so with all our difficulties in doing that and all our ways of sensing things we we can't it's not this distorted thing that's learnt over there it's actually part of the human conversation and the conversation is something very important that perhaps technology can help us with but not replace and and that's where it becomes an awkward relationship I think so and and the way of solving things is to have a, a whiteboard that's interactive that no one can use um, iPads that go missing uh, this this sort of thing which is a fetishizing of the, the technology itself rather than whether it's actually helping learning. But the first relationship in the classroom is teacher-pupil and pupils being human, reacting in a human way to things that they're looking at. And that, that's sort of a central relationship to it. Culture wars, um, I think we, we are in, we are, we're clearly in culture wars. Um, and the culture of schools, the po political side of schooling, if you like, is, is very much on the front line. And, and curriculum is very much on the front line. Do what you, do you teach? It, it, this, is, this is the most important question. What do you teach? Why do you teach that? And these have to be faced. And they're, they're very difficult questions, and they're very controversial questions. Is your book an intervention into that yeah. culture war? Yeah, but it's not necessarily saying the easy answer. <laughs> is saying this is a bit more complex than that. So I think we need a curriculum that is um, dialectical, that, that offers argument, that, that gives um, perspectives on things, that there are ways of looking at things. But the important thing is that the pupil is free with that information and ideas and thinking to make up their own minds. So it's, it's an education for freedom and free thought not an education that you must think this way. This, this is uh, really interesting because I think one of the uh, distinctive things about what you're saying um, uh, is, for example, many people, and now Ofsted, have picked up on the Matthew Arnold thing that what we should be doing is teaching the, the best that has been thought and, and said. And some of you may have heard that, that Matthew Arnold was a 
uh, a school inspector, son of a school in no, son he of was a, the first. Uh, yes, he was the first. Um, but you know what's interesting is that many people that make the kind of arguments you're making look to that. You actually have a critique of it. I mean, I think you, you're keen on, on bits of Arnold, but not that bit. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. I think you can't teach the best that's been thought and said, and because we don't know what the best is. I mean, it would take a very wise person to know what the best is. There are certain things that are better than other things. But to arrive at those things is, in a subjective sense, part of what the conversation is for. So we have the conversations about. But also because when we come to say, I like that, it is personal taste that comes into it. And so when I do talks about this, I talk about toast and tea. And they say, which colour tea do you like best? You know, and, and of course, everyone says, well, and you have this big discussion, well, I prefer that, I prefer that, I prefer that. So we're already into, well, if we can't do it with tea, how the hell can we do it with novels? You know, and say, so, well, that's the best novel, that's the best writer. Well, you know, I mean, which is Dickens isn't even in Levis, for example, didn't put Dickens in his first few lists at all. No, Dickens at all. Dickens was not one of the best writers at all. Then finally, go, I think he says, yeah, all right, hard times. And put hard times on the list, so that, that's all right then, you know. But, of course, that's argued with. Which is the best art? Which we, I can tell you what the best art is from my perspective. But can I argue with you from your perspective about that and can we get into a discussion about that so we can listen to each other, understand each other's perspectives and ideas and come up with the same view or, or perhaps appreciate someone else's view, etc., etc. So who's best? Wagner, Puccini, or Stormzy? Well, people are going to say Stormzy. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, so unless you're in Croydon, you know, that's Stormzy. You know. But, um, but, but straight Stormzy's old hat in Croydon. Yeah, but, but well, even, I, I, would, I would argue that if you've got a kid who can say Stormzy is the best of those three, but musically can pick apart Puccini and Wagner and Stormzy and tell you why Stormzy's the best compared to them, rather than they're shit and boring then that's a good education. They've had a good education because they come up with their own take. Now, I might disagree with it, but they understand about Puccini. They understand about Wagner and they understand about Stormzy. And that's what I mean about the distinctiveness because you're, you're allowing for pupils to have an opinion and to, to create space to express that opinion. But you do... Uh, do you not assign importance to tradition I mean do you see yourself as, as a traditionalist not necessarily in the sort of prog argument but do you, do you conceive yourself as a traditionalist yeah so, so the tradition is the culture if you like without the tradition the culture around us we, we would have no way of understanding the world that we're in the, the, the structure that tradition gives to us I mean these are chairs these are clothes you know, you know it helps us you know, thinking every day to think, well, I'm going to put a jacket on today. You know, I know what a jacket is and all that. I'm going to put all these things on. So, so culture is there. It has a, a way of shaping us and helping us see the world and all that. But it also gives us the place for the argument in that. That we can say, so there's, there's a... Um, I mean, if you took the thing from the idea of universal suffrage, where you have to have the vote in the first place, you know, the, the vote is there in the first place to come up with the idea that I should have it as well, then they should have it, and, and all this thing. So the, the tradition helps things move, 
Um, so without it, there's no argument against it, if you like. So, so you need the, the things need to contain themselves. But I was a punk, for goodness sake. I, 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 of course, I shout up against it as well. But punk was very odd because, of course, it brought the traditional old rock and roll back again as a shout against the progressive genesis. Many people in the room have no idea what no, you're talking about. <laughs> um, right, so Pretty there was, there was uh, someone here that wants to ask uh, something. Kurt, please. Um, hi, my name's Beth. I work in... Um, education outreach with an adequate school based in London um, and I just thought about what you said about Wagner and Stormzy and, and things like that um, I don't think there, there is any equivalent to real life, I'm all for free thought but um, I think that's sort of the same sentiment as you were talking about with business and that it just teaches you how to communicate and, and how to argue which I do think equips you for, for lots of life but I don't think that's the reality in a lot of schools, especially the ones that that I work in, um, but given you know um, this idea of, of free thought um, and that being the basis of education, but I think um, the machine extends far beyond education. Uh, I think what you're alluding to is, is more sort of societal change that that we need. Um, so I work with outreach programs in schools, which go into schools and um, you know we, we work with local businesses in London and they run outreach programs and actually teach them about sort of real life and the values of that. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on the place of that, rather than being, you know, shutting the door and closing that and that being sort of the basis of the child's education. Um, what about the place of, uh, you know, actual real life experience and learning about that? Um, Okay, before you answer that one, Martin, I'm just going to go around and see if there, there are more people, especially if we haven't heard from you so far this evening. We've got a couple of people. I know Joe wants to come in again. I know Kevin had his hand up and Codders wants to speak, but uh, we're going we're gonna to go down to the back. I'd like to say a word in defence of the schools who really go for it with these initiatives that you were talking about, growth mindset, because they're the ones who hold it up to be the ridiculous nonsense it is so everyone will see that. So I, I like the fact... <laughs> no, really, I like the Beacons fact, of unlearning. Yeah, they, they go for it to the extent they don't mind that they, they, they don't care what they look like. And they're the people that will bring it all down. Because I think the kids can see it, ultimately. I think a lot of the students know it's rubbish. They can see nonsense when, they, when, when it's in front of them. Mm. Um, so again, a lot of this was a well-being thing. The well-being drive of the moment out of control, and they get the paradox of that. And the more you go on that well-being, the worse you start to feel. I mean, the, the students are not stupid, particularly teenagers. Um, the, the danger is they kind of turn away from adults, and that's when you get the extinction rebellion nightmare. But, but then, on the other hand, you do hold up all these initiatives for the junk that they are. So, I mean, I like that side of it, that when people really get... Some teachers are so earnest. You can just imagine them back at school themselves doing exactly what they were told. In exactly how they were. And they're doing it now, and you think that's great because thanks for showing me why I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and and the, the final thing is there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. A lot of teachers just don't bother with a lot of this stuff. I mean Yeah, you don't know the rules, but it was just you, you do things properly. I might be shutting an opening door So it's not as bad as you know, in some in some ways, the, the, the best thing is, is that these schools, these beacon schools, will, will, will really go for it. They're the best people.
All right, so is there, is there anyone in, in the room, or is it going to fall to me to stand up for these uh, places? Any, anyone, you know, doesn't feel well-being is nonsense and uh, thinks that there might be something in growth? Am I... It's, I've never told you who I was, but I, I'm, I'm Kate and I teach biology, and I was head of sixth form, but that's a long story. Um, it's just that people don't do it very well. So there's something to be said for the concept of growth mindset in its original form. <laughs> Although it does tend to make an awful lot of children feel stupid because you're always saying to them, well, you know, if you stretch yourself, you could be better, you could be better. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, aren't I okay, you know, as I am? I mean, there's nothing wrong with pushing yourself, but it tends to land incorrectly with many students. And as for well-being, I mean, well-being weak, wow, so let's do some colouring in and so on and so forth. Well-being is much bigger than that. It's the way you live your life. And again, many schools don't tend to teach it like that. It's, it's like, we'll pay lip service, all these little things. And it's... I'm it's not nice. sure if that was, was damning with faint praise, to be honest, but uh, is, is there anybody else that wants to... That was in support of growth mindset. Yeah, that was in support of growth mindset. This lady on the end. I was going to say, yes. yeah, I was just going to say, I'm um, an administrator, and I've worked in two different schools. I've had daughters go through school. I personally went through school myself. But one thing I would say from being on the kind of admin side is a lot of senior leadership they get promoted into roles, and actually, you know, we talk about the data and management of information. They don't know how to do it quickly, how to do it effectively, and nobody wants to say, I don't know. And actually, to get the time to be told how to do it, or to get some help. So there's this, as you say, there is, digitally, there is loads out there that can help, but I'd say 90% of people are struggling with actually how to use anything effectively, which is creating, and as well, there is a lot of, um, teachers often don't want to say to their own peer group or something like, I don't understand this, I don't know how to do this, or to work collaboratively. And also I've seen a lot of bullying in schools. And they're kind of like these kind of little mini-states. You, you mean it amongst staff? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, yeah. You know, and you just think, what happens to people? Like, do they go through some kind of strange door? Something happens to them. You know, and then everybody knows what's right. going on. And it, it's kind of, it's quite strange, and then that kind of feeds, and somebody's saying there about children, they know that children can kind of suss everything out. And also, you're all dealing with the issue of just all the societal issues, and almost where some children need to be kind of taken out in slightly different education, not because they're different, but there's so many things they don't know that they have to look after themselves, eat properly, sleep. So teachers can be tending with so much on top of just having the love of their subject, and something needs to be done to square down that teacher is, this is what I'm good at, this is what I love, and how can I get that across and actually just teach? And whatever else needs to be within a school or fed into, like you were talking about doing outreach business, but also, I see in our schools, there are so many outside agencies coming in, but there's still such levels of stress and everybody being overstretched. So the, the picture you're, you're painting then is, is, is bureaucracy, the need to keep that all rolling, but no one's really in charge of it. Yeah, and it's people like sitting down, honestly, saying, or as well, kind of how can we reduce this down? How can we look at what do we actually need within this and get rid of the others? Because what is being asked on all kinds of level is impossible, and nobody is facing it. 
So you okay. have a working party to uh, investigate it. The, the worst thing you can do in teaching is, is do something well when you don't have to do it again. So if you don't have to do something again, don't do it well the first time. So when you get data management, just, just cut it out. They'll take it away from you. <laughs> the man that's been serving you wine all evening. <laughs> he hasn't been drinking. So Harley's got one more point, and then I'm going to bring Mar- Martin back in. I'm also going to stand up a bit for a growth mindset. Um, in, only in that it's, it's an idea which has a certain measure of common sense about it. It's probably better to have a sort of fairly positive view to the cha- challenges and obstacles that life throws at you. But it's an idea that you know you can take or leave depending on the circumstances. The trouble is when people say, oh, we've got to do it because Carol Dweck's research says that it works, or if they reject it out of hand because someone else comes on and say, Carol Dweck, says Carol Dweck's research is rubbish, either way, you're kind of, you're, you're missing the point of, you know, of engaging an idea which may have some benefit for you, but that's a, go back to what you said earlier, that's a human thing, you judge whether it's any good or not for you. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested on this closing and opening doors thing, because you're talking about the closing doors. I mean, the, the idea of closing the door is to keep the bureaucracy at bay, if you like. It's, it's not to keep the minds closed, because, I mean, what a subject does, it's what you think. The mind is open to the world, isn't it? So we're, what the teacher is doing is giving thoughts or ways of thinking and things to think about. So when you read this text and this text and this text, these are the texts that really open you out to the world, which is why we've chosen, why we've chosen George Eliot or whatever. You know, we, we want you to read this because this will expand the way of seeing the world, which is what helps with well-being. Rather than a narrow well-being program, this helps because it's, it's a human stories about human things. So, so we close the classroom door literally, but we open the minds figuratively to the world by saying here we are, these are the works we're going to share with you, whether it be science whether it be maths, whether it be art whatever it is this is the way this, these, these, this is the meat you're going to think about this is what we do so it's, it's all about thinking we don't think separately to the things we're being taught about we, you know, right from day one we're thinking about the world as it's come into our sphere you know, and our, our values, the ways we see the world, all those things coming into terms with our brains. Well, it's our minds, and our minds are opening more and more. And that's, that's the point of education, is to open more and open more, rather than close. So closing the door to stop them closing the minds would be the thing. That's the metaphor, if you like. Now, in terms of the real world, that is the, real, the school is the real world. It's not separate to it. It's not, it is the real world. Teachers are real people working in real places with real children. This is the real world. This is the, the, the things of thought is real. You know, it's not a, a, a world separate to the real world. It's, it's, it's enriching the real world. It's expanding the real world, if you like. But it's not, it's not separate to... It's not, do, you, do you disagree? No, no, I, I, I do agree. I think, um, yeah, you're right, it is the real, real world. Um, but I think a lot of the, the people that I work with, um, it's, it's, it's not a reality for them. It's how um, education really works in, in their minds. I think it's... Give us um, an example, so... You know, I, 
yeah, students and people from referral units, so really, you know, very targeted kids. Um, they're, that, they're completely estranged from that idea of their minds being opened up. They want to be more practical. Um, they want to learn in, in ways where they actually can see a, a start and middle and an end, and they end with something, you know, material that they can sort of be proud of, rather than, um, you know, more ethereal thoughts and, and ways to approach the world. So, uh, yeah, that's an extreme example, but... I don't think it's an extreme example. I think that, yeah. though, that there are pupils like that in just about <coughs> every class, that, you, you know, your argument is a bit too high-flown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I was one of those pupils. I mean, I was thrown out of school. Um, I was uh, not uh, enjoying the education I was, I was having and all those things. Also, I've worked with kids like that. Um, I remember doing one thing with um, murder in the cathedral, which is one of the sort of densest things you could possibly do with um, kids who've been expelled, and getting to learn pages and pages of T.S. Eliot's impenetrable text, and then loving it, and and really getting something out of it, um, because it was something that aimed so high. But it wasn't something that was talking down to them. It's saying, here's something you won't understand to start with. Here's something you've got no idea what you're doing. But you lot, and it was the time of Reservoir Dogs. Right, you four, you're going to wear dark glasses and you're going to do these huge speeches. You're the knights, right? You're coming in, he's going to get killed, all this sort of stuff. But you're into this sort of, so you go in with the, the blood of it. And by the end of it, they're doing these tracks of T.S. Eliot and, and getting something far beyond they ever thought was part of their remit. You know, this is not what we do. We do practical things all the time. Well, here's something that means nothing. That's the great thing about being a drama teacher. It has no, it has no, no importance whatsoever. This doesn't matter. I'd say that it's more practical. I used to be an acting teacher as well. Yeah. And, you know, well, there you go. There you go. to stand up and do a speech is, is less about sitting down and thinking about what's written on a whiteboard. It's practical. It's physical. It's, you know, come on, okay. body. It's... Okay, but I would argue that that happens in all subjects. If you really so maths? encounter, yeah, if you encounter some sort, you you teach it. Don't I know, you? not like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I mean, it can do, and it can involve you. Yeah, it can be something that's important to you. It can be my daughter comes home and she's suddenly, for God knows what reason, someone who hates maths, she says, loves algebra, and she's really into algebra. Now, to see the enthusiasm of algebra. Now, I think confidence isn't taught. I think confidence comes from competence. And as soon as you've got something, then there's the enthusiasm takes over from that. And because she's really got into that, then it's really helping her get... And she's, she's physical about it. She's like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> OK, I'm, I'm just conscious we've yeah. got about sort of six... Six minutes, I think, and then we are going to have to wrap up. So if you have been sitting there desperate for a question, Joe, I will come to you, but I'm going to have this chap first who hasn't spoken yet. So I'm Ben. I'm a, I'm a trainee teacher at the moment, working with Kevin down at Red Academy. That's Island. why Ben hasn't spoken until now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, the majority of my timetable, understand me at the moment, obviously I've only been teaching for about 12 weeks, is key stage three. And uh, from year seven, sort of, Starting around the last couple of weeks at least anyway, 
and certainly eight and nine all the way through, we're looking at GCSE style questions. Near on, I'd say one in two lessons, otherwise every lesson, on the resources prepared anyway, on, on the system. I'm in no position whatsoever in the school I'm in, and the culture, I don't know if Kevin will agree, the school that we're in, you just don't say anything in terms of these sort of things that are going on. If you had the opportunity to speak to my head of department, what would you say should be going on <laughs> with those year seven, year eight, year nine, year so three students? Should they be, well, I know you will say probably they shouldn't be answering those GCSE style questions, but, that's the but what should the main focus be instead? Really, really, really topic? good question. Uh, geography, uh, history, humanities, but geography is mine. Yeah. Okay, before we do that, because I know Joe has been patiently waiting to ask. Just, just a quick thought. I yeah. think the contributions that made me, you know, when people are provocative, they do make you think in a larger scale, don't they? And, and I keep thinking, sort of, know your enemy. And, you know, when you talk about technology, uh, the biggest educational event in the UK that none of you, I don't know how many people in this room have been to, is the Bet Show. If you've never been to the Bet Show, go to the Bet mm-hmm. Show. And then suddenly start thinking about that. What that really means. That's, yeah. that's all that. Very, very good point. Thank you. There was yeah, a question over here. Um, I'm Dave. I'm a science teacher. Um, I've only been teaching for like three years, so similar to you, not much experience. But in my personal experience, I feel like the biggest impact I've had, and maybe this shows my adequacy as a scientist, but the biggest impact I've had is outside of my subject area. In like time I've spent with students individually, you know outside of class or beyond the subject and, and maybe that's my passion for the subject is not as great as it is for, for other people of their own subjects but I feel like my biggest impact in the areas I teach in the disadvantaged areas is in is outside of the subject and I want to know how obviously you're relating this to curriculum it's really subject based talk but in areas that I teach a lot of these kids their access to the subject is, is not really there. And I feel like the biggest impact I have on the students is the conversations or things I can teach them beyond just science. Yeah. You know, it's being, you know, growing up things to learn as they grow up, you know, things that they might not be exposed to um, beyond the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sort of question to you. Great. Thank you. Have we got any more? I know Kevin wants to say something. Connor, um, if you could do it pretty briefly so we can give him a, a couple of minutes. So I'll thank you for it. Um, sort of in relation to what Kevin was saying earlier, but when I had teaching with 10 years ago, uh, I heard a couple of very young middle, leader, middle leaders, as they were called at the time, I was an AGT, talking about dead wood, they're talking about older teachers. I didn't understand this, I didn't know what I was doing. I was very, very happy to learn. I knew, I knew my subject, you know, on the green rock and stuff. But I was really happy to have conversations about my subject with people who've been doing it for a lot longer than me. That does not mean I revered them. It does not mean they were right. It just meant they may have something that's worth listening to. But the talk that I heard, uh, it was a relatively new academy at the time, is that people who were over a certain age, who have been doing it for a certain years, were stuck in their ways, and they were daft. And they may also know something that you don't. So we need to hear them out. And by, by the end of my MQT, you were sitting in a meeting, who's had these meetings all the MQTs, and he said, you must be thinking about career progression now. I'm just sitting there going, no, just want to do subject. If I don't want to do any TLRs, I've been 11 years now and I've resisted every offer to apply for any other role because I just like 
patient science, and we just want to talk about biology. And if I, I would like more time, as you knew, I was arguing more time to plan, do collaborative planning. But if taken on another road meant I was let's spend less time in the classroom so I could do spreadsheets or sit in meetings or go and observe my colleagues, I've no interest. But I just I, I wonder is something that's always been there, but a suspicion of experience which I just did not understand. But a lot of my peers, when I was you know training in ATT, had this suspicion of expert, of, of experience which did not resonate with me. Thank you very much. Kevin, the, the longer you speak, the less he'll speak, so I'll just leave that before you. Two things. The first one is about um, the curriculum. It was interesting when you were questioning um, Martin, and Martin was going a bit off that it's really good that we're having a conversation about the curriculum. This is a really brilliantly interesting point. I'm not quite sure it is. And, you know, I think you two at the front will understand this point. I always thought that the starting point for education was that it was an intergenerational conversation. I'm thinking about that out of conservative, he's a great guy, Michael Oakshot. And mm -hmm. so what you had was society, we would have a conversation, us adults, about what we thought was useful to pass down to our young ones, the next generation. It's what's interesting about the way that schools are operating now, they're operating almost in a bubble, initiated from the broader cultural trends in society. So I wonder, are, we're not really talking socialization anymore, we're talking a, an interesting, strange form of a factor in social engineering. And really what I'm trying to get at is, this I could be wrong, but it's the idea that we think that the curriculum should be decided by Ofsted, or even the particular academics in the schools. And I do think there's an absolute rule for them, but prior to that is the question why. Why, why do we want to pass on certain knowledge to kids? What do we prioritise? What do we want to teach them? And it seems like our broader society has been left out of that conversation. It has been left out of that conversation. So it's quite reductionist. The way that it's born. So that's the first thing I would throw out. Can I, can I stop you there? Because we're on quarter right. to nine, and that's going to be enough for us. So, uh, Martin, what, what are you going to say to the head of department? I was really interested in that. Uh, what about really, going outside yeah. the subject social engineering and the, and the respect right. for experience? So the, the head of department, I mean, again, when I go to school, <coughs> I mean, I'm obviously being invited into schools that perhaps like what I'm saying. <laughs> so, um, the, the heads of the department I talk to perhaps are a bit more open yeah. to it. Um, so if I went into that school, I'd have been invited in so I could have yeah. quite happily have that conversation. I think you're quite right not to say anything in your position. I'm definitely not. So I'm not going to recommend it necessarily. <laughs> um, but uh, in, in terms of the school culture, which is probably the whole culture, it's probably like that. That's the way things are done here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, it's not the department, it's the... Yeah, so, so I would say that is a mistaken culture, and I, I'd say it's yeah. deeply damaging. And, and, and not only that, if, if we get into this whole thing about well-being, if kids are being told from day one that exams are so important, that if you fail these exams, you're going to fail at life or not get the good jobs or do this, that and the other, it's really competitive out there, and from day one in this school, we're marking you on GCSE grades, and you haven't got it, and you come home, and my daughter's come home in tears because of this. Yeah, and I can... We've seen, we've had multiple kids in the last two or yeah. three weeks, literally in tears, yeah. from I mean, pretty much 
And they can't answer the question, then you get into this whole thing about let's look at the exam criteria, and then you start talking about exam criteria, and then you realise that exam criteria in lots of subjects is nigh on impenetrable. And you've got no idea what's the difference between good, excellent, and outstanding. You know, got these different descriptors for the same thing going on. It's an outstanding example. So then we look at examples of and things like that. And it becomes a science thing. And you spend all that time trying to talk about the marking criteria and you forgot to talk about the subject itself. So they're spending all the time looking at all those things. The stress is becoming more and more I mean, obvious. So, would you say the focus is on teaching the content yes. and then sort of understanding it? Yes. Or is there sort of a 50-50 balance no. maybe between... <laughs> <laughs> I think the GCSE questions for the uh, key three. I mean, to an extent, year nine. I mean, teach, teach it's a bit understandable, but and, and it takes time to learn this stuff. You can't learn this in little chunks that fit in nice to uh, this to GCSE criteria. You can't do it. So it takes time to build up a joined up curriculum. That you're thinking it through time, and then when it comes to the end of year ten or something, if that's the exams in year eleven, then perhaps. That's when you start looking at how to answer the questions, when they have all the battery of knowledge that they need to do, and they can draw on this and understand what they're doing, rather than not understanding it and stressing them out. And I think that is a huge, huge problem for children, and parents, by the way, who have to mop up the tears. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's managerialism that's damaging children, definitely. I completely 100% agree the whole way through. I just want to ask you. No, I'm sorry. I'd love, I'd love you to, but please, please answer afterwards. I'm afraid. Time. Time, time. I'm really sorry. Time has been. It's, it's a sign of a really, really good conversation that we, we could just sit here and, and talk all night. Uh, I, I know you've got loads of other things to say. Perhaps you can have a little discussion before we finish, but we, we are going to need to wrap up. I'm sorry to, to close it down. Please uh, do buy a copy of the book because most of you haven't read it so there's no uh, excuse you can't sit here talking about a book that you can't I'm, I'm selling read. them today at the knockdown price of a fiver of no <laughs> <laughs> of £10 which is cheaper than you can get it just about anywhere um, absolutely so £10 so formal order Q but before we do that before we do that ladies and gentlemen I just want to I just want to say um, that this is organised by the Academy of Ideas, and, and on, on your chairs you do have a little sheet that explains um, what we're about and what we do, and I think you'll agree that it's not often in education you have conversations like this, especially where we could sit and talk for another hour about all this stuff, people able to say what they truly <laughs> think about things. It's, it's quite rare, and so... Over free drink. Over free drink. <laughs> So, freedom of expression and free drink, I think, are two defining things, but mostly the freedom of expression. Um, please do uh, take that piece of paper away and think about how you uh, might like to come back to other events, check us out on the web, but also if you'd like to support the Academy of Ideas, because it is difficult in the current climate to run uh, events like this. It's, um, it's particularly difficult at the moment and the more that we get to talk with each other and exchange ideas and, and say to each other, well I'm not sure I agree with that or you know, I think you're wrong about that, then that's the way I think um, society might move forward. So uh, do take that piece of paper away, think about supporting the Academy of Ideas. Would you please thank Martin Robinson for an <laughs>